Well, hello and welcome to the Plain Talking UK podcast. This is episode 437. I'm Nev and it's my great pleasure to uh, introduce the show because Carlos is not here tonight, which is probably just as well after last week's technical difficulties. Um, but um, now, now, <laughs> having said that, uh, the main technical man is back in the hot seat tonight, and we're all very grateful for that. Let me tell you, and it's uh, it's Matt Smith. Hello, mate. Hello, hello. How are you? How are you? Yes, very good, thank you. Very good, very good. We've been up to this week. Uh, not a lot, really. Just working, mostly, mostly working, hardly working, that sort of thing. Was it? Was it? I, I can't remember the phrase now. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, isn't it? It's like hardly working or working hard. Not quite sure which one. <laughs> yes. Little bit of column A, little bit of column B. What about you? What have you been up to? Um, yeah, a bit of flying this week. Uh, flew out to Stockholm on um, Sunday uh, for work, and then came back on. I think it was Thursday in, in the end. Uh, or oh, no, it was. Oh. Hang on. It was Tuesday I flew back, but I actually came back from Copenhagen, so I was doing some stuff in Denmark, so I got the train uh, across the uh, the water uh, from Malmö to Copenhagen, which was nice. Hadn't I'm sorry, did you say you got the train across the water? Yes, uh, a bridge <laughs> and a tunnel and all oh, the rest Oh, I see, right. Um, so, yeah, that's all, all rather good. Um, so that was nice, um, but yes, a, a busy week at work, and I'm quite glad we're at the end of the week i have to say it's been a bit, a bit hectic but uh, uh joining us also on the show and this is a, a rare occurrence where we have armando and myself <laughs> on the show at the same time welcome is... armando hi nev hi matt hi special guest who we haven't introduced yet <laughs> uh, is this one of, is this one of these contractually obliged like sort of three a year type sort of things <laughs> well, yeah it's december 9th right now uh so we've got another two to squeeze in contractually before the end of the right. calendar year so yeah. <laughs> okay very good <laughs> Glad and fact, and I, well yeah but <laughs> the end of the year is not very far away either is it it's, mm. i mean it's just a matter of a couple of weeks to Christmas, Gosh, and then yeah. it's the end of the year again. How, Unbelievable. So when we're recording this, it's the 9th of December already. How is that possible? <laughs> it's horrific, isn't it? Well, it is. what's even crazier is we're in episode 437. I feel like we just did the 400th. Yeah. Um, you know, the guys over at APG were talking about going down to Brooklyn's. I think uh, Captain Nick gave a, a speech for the Royal Aeronautical Society down there just this week, and he was talking about our 400th. Mm. And it feels like it was just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Jeez. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, amazing. Well, also joining us uh, from a hotel uh, in West Sussex, that fantastic uh, <laughs> aviator, never short of a few words to brighten our day, it's Andy. Oh, that was a very kind intro. You could have said it's Crawley. I mean, it's not that nice. Well, I didn't, didn't want to, you know... <laughs> You want to give the game away in case people try to, you know, break in or ask for your yeah, or yeah. you've got to watch like it. You've got to watch out for the groupies, definitely. Yeah, it's yeah, like sure. your hometown of Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Oh, oh I'm dear. not going to be allowed to let, let that one. Down. I said something I shouldn't have done before the show started. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> so what's well, uh, what's going on with you, Andy? Why, why are you? Uh, down in that neck of the woods at the moment. Uh, I am in Crawley as I start uh, an instructor's course tomorrow for work, or as the Americans call it, a, a, what is it, a line check airman course. That's yeah, what I'm doing. Exactly. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so I start that tomorrow, so hopefully I get through that. And I've done very little work since I was last on the show. I've basically had a month off at home. Good Lord. It's yeah. been very nice, but I've always had lots of jobs to do. Somehow my wife finds something for me to do every day. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I, I don't think you're alone there, to be fair, Andy. <laughs> and how long does the course nice. last for, Andy? Uh, it is five days from tomorrow. Mm. Okay. Gosh. Right. Yeah, well, pretty intense. Two days in the classroom, three days in the sim. Brilliant. Well, that's, yeah. that's going to be hard work, but you're well up to the job, I'm sure. <laughs> Apparently. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your faith, Nev. Yeah, it's always appreciated. Somebody's got two, haven't they? Eh? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Quite. Um, well, so uh, we are. Well, we were at the start of the month last week, but due to uh, many reasons, uh, we were unable to uh, uh, talk about our fantastic listeners, uh, many of which contribute to our funds via Patreon or PayPal. So we're going to do it now instead. And uh, here is this month's list. Uh, the people who have contributed by Patreon are Sam Dawson, Logan Lynch, Alex Robinson, Dirk S, Sasha Beer, Stephen Ivey, Nick Codling, Louis Cacharez, uh, Alan White, Stephen Howland, Tanya Wyman, Nicholas Hewitt, Masha, uh, Ruben Wells, Neil Lanwarn, Graham Haley, Jonathan Warner, Eric Graves, Jordan Rose, Andrew Wilson, my goodness me, um, Captain Jeff, Adam Spink, Liz Piper, Jeff Ward, Jenny Parkinson, Evan Shue, Stuart Backer, Ray Williams, and Stephanie Plummer. And the people that have donated via PayPal are Craig Urosoko, Richard Adams, Tony Stubbings, and Masus Kareem. And uh, we thank them all very much indeed, because without your contributions, we really haven't got a show. So it makes a huge difference to us, and uh, we're very grateful for everything that you guys and girls are helping us with. Uh, um, and uh, this is also coming to the time of the year where we'll be having one of our production meetings in mm. January, hopefully, uh, where we talk about, between us all, what we're going to be doing during the course of next year. And we've got a lot of things planned, um, and these sorts of funds really help us to, to do them. So once again, thank you very much indeed, and we we'll, should be sharing some of that info with you um, over the next, um, well, over the next month or so, once we've Absolutely. Yeah, exactly yeah. where we're going to be and, and what we're doing. So, yeah, uh, exciting yeah, really, times. Really so, exciting uh, times yeah. ahead. It is, yes. Um, and um, I was just about to... Oh, here they are, the chat room. Yes, that's really important. So the people in the chat room tonight are uh, Dirk S, Tanya. Uh, hello, Tanya. Lee Davis, uh, Hobby Time, Mash is in there. Uh, Richard Adams, of course. Um, who else have we got in there? Um, Lee Davis, have already mentioned. Armando, yes. Uh, and... Uh, uh, Kess already mentioned and Tanya as well. So uh, yeah, thank you very much indeed for joining everybody. It's been uh, been great mm. that you can spare the time to do so. so that's yes, it. yes. Yeah, there are other things you could be doing on a Friday. So we're grateful you choose us. Well, yeah. Um, there's been some football on apparently as well. Some what now? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Okay, good, lovely. Something something happening tomorrow, some quarter-final game, apparently. I, I, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, some, some team called England, I think, against... Uh, is it France, something apparently, like that? Apparently it is, yeah. <laughs> I, will, I probably will watch it, actually. Ooh. Mrs Nev's discussed. So yeah, quite. probably have to watch it upstairs on right. the other telly. Yeah. Because uh, she won't want to have that business on her television. No, quite, upstairs, absolutely. Yeah. Will, you, will you be cheering it on, Andy, or...? Uh... Uh, yes, yeah. I'm not a big fan of domestic football, but I love uh, the World Cup and the yeah. Euros, so yes, I will. And my wife actually quite enjoys watching it as well. Wow, yeah. She probably watches it for different reasons to you, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Uh, <laughs> wow. 
Fair enough. Uh, Armando, have you been watching any of the World Cup or is it, I mean, is, is it even a thing in the States? I mean, I know obviously USA were, were in uh, the tournament. Okay, this might actually surprise you, but it is it is quite popular here. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Soccer, I think, uh, sorry. Soccer, soccer ball. <laughs> yeah, soccer. Soccer's great, especially what's in international, right? Um, <laughs> no. Um, no, it, it is actually gaining a lot more popularity. And, and here with the uh, MLS, the, the I guess, professional soccer, mm. soccer series um, here in the U.S., I think a lot of large cities have gained a following, so... Yeah. Um, but you know, you guys know where my heart is, so I'll be cheering for England. Way correct answer. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, Nev, dig us out of this sports. No, call, that's will fine. You, for no, a quick... no. If Carlos was here, he'd be hissing and spitting and all sorts. Yeah, it's by... not his favourite subject, is it? <laughs> no, no. Any not form by... of sport he's not a fan not, of, to be fair. Not by a long way. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> well, if we're already then let's go and have a look at the commercial news section. Captain, let's turn on the seatbelt light. Please take your seats and fasten your seatbelts. Well, this really is the end of an era, the end of a reign, uh, where Boeing rolls out the final 747 aircraft. This is on uh, aerotime.aero, interestingengineering.com and businesstraveler.com. The 1,574th and last Boeing 747 aircraft has left Boeing's wide-body factory in Everett ahead of its delivery to Atlas Air next year. In July 2020, shortly after the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, the manufacturer announced plans to cease production of its jumbo aircraft. At the time, Boeing had 16 uh, 747 aircraft still to deliver all freighter versions of the plane and said it would stop production in 2022. The last 747 rolled out of Everett, Washington in, in the US, a site which was uh, specifically built to assemble and manufacture the twin-deck aircraft. It's also the largest building in the world by volume ever built. The site delivered its first aircraft in 1970 to Pan Am. Since, there, since then, there have been eight major, major variants of the type of the aircraft, and these have been developed and many more subtypes and one-off variants also produced. In fact, Atlas Air are now the largest operator of the type, operating 54 747s and four 747 LCFs. So that's quite a big moment, isn't it, to see the, the, finally the end of the production. Mm this uh, iconic and well game-changing aircraft in terms of how it enabled the masses to travel across continents at relatively inexpensive prices it, it still makes me feel sad if i'm honest with you i i still feel like the the journey shouldn't be over for this this iconic aircraft do you know what i mean and i know you know the commercial uh, the uh, freighter variant obviously will be in service for many 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 years still to come but um you know i i guess it's the the sign of the times isn't it with the four engine thing where you can you know get uh, the same sort of distance and things out of two engines and you know more economical fuel burn etc cetera, etc cetera. but uh, i i still i still feel really sad about the whole thing People that I know that have either been a first officer or a captain on the 747 tell me that it is 
a very nice aircraft to fly and to handle, very much a, a pilot's aircraft. Would you agree with that, uh, Armando, from what, from what you've heard as well? I, I would. Everybody that uh, that has flown it that I know, um, and, and you guys know John Jester, John and I have, you know, talked about this airplane. It, it, it'll be one of those aircraft that goes down in history. It'll be as as iconic as Concorde, as the B-17, as the Piper Cub, you know, the, we're, we're all 80 years old sitting at the pub talking about those airplanes back in, you know, the last, in the 19th or 20th century. Um, you know, that this airplane will, will be at the top on the commercial list of the most iconic aircraft. Andy, what do you think? Oh, like you said, I was going to say exactly the same thing as you never to pilot's airplane. Um, I was lucky enough to fly a 200 slash SP simulator for a while. One of the last operating ones in Europe. I was instructor on that quite a few years ago now, and that was beautiful to fly. And I've flown the uh, 400 sim as well. Again, just a great, you could feel, even though it was just a simulator, and of course it feels different to the real aircraft, you could feel the weight of the thing when you flew it as well. Um, absolutely fantastic aircraft. If not, you said change travel for everybody and the entire world. I don't think low-cost carriers would exist if something like this hadn't come along. No, to, uh, I, I, I was just about to say down. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, without looking it up, so 1,500, almost 1,600 aircraft is a lot. What do you guys think is the most produced aircraft in the world? Without sure, the 737, 10,771, I think, something like that. It's a good guess. Nev? Um. Yeah, I was going to say either the seven three seven or or the seven two seven, perhaps. Back nah, in the seven two Matt didn't get above three thousand. I don't think. Oh, okay. I don't know. I mean, I I feel like as, uh, this is this is like a jumbo. Yeah, this is what we're not talking about. Like. No, yeah, we're you're not, talking I'm, I'm commercial any or any aircraft. Oh, sorry, well, one seven two then. I was going to say, I was going to say something like <laughs> like a little Cessna, something like the one fifty or like the one fifty or the one seven two. Uh, that is correct. The one seventy two, forty four thousand yeah. of them. How about how about commercial yeah. airliners? It's got to be the well. I don't know. I, I I'm I'm with Andy. I think it's the 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 seven three, just because it's, it's the seven three or the three twenty. I'm not sure if the three twenty yeah. surpassed it. The three the three um too young though, isn't it? Because yeah. the seven three's been around longer, if you sort of mean. I don't know. Go on then. All good guesses. Put, put, us, uh, put us out of our misery. So the 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 most produced commercial aircraft, the DC three. Oh, really? Uh, oh, tenuous. Sixteen thousand of them. The seven thirty seven was about eleven. Well, they're up to about eleven thousand. Okay. Mm. So the DC three and the A three twenty, right, right there behind them, ten thousand six hundred. Wow. Okay. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. That's 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 slightly unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> the, Sorry, that was uh, a fun unexpected quiz. Well, yes, oh, quite. Yeah. Nothing like uh, random stuff like that. No. I remember, uh, in fact, our la- in fact coming back from the Dubai Air Show, uh, Carlos and I were on a seven four seven four hundred with uh, the BAE boys and girls, and that was going to be what we didn't realise at the time was that was going to be our last ever flight, yeah. probably. On a 747. Um, we had a nice visit to the flight deck at the end, and both the captain and the first officer had said that they transitioned from the 767 to the trip uh, and 777 to the 74. And apart from obviously relying quite heavily on the radio altimeter, 
uh, in the final phases of landing? Because obviously you've got a completely different perspective, I would imagine, of, of the runway because you're up a lot higher. Um, the handling and even the ground handling to a certain extent, there were similarities, which is incredible if you, if you think about you know, the, the size of the aircraft and the potential weight of it as well. I feel yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah, true. Right, we'll move on then to the next story. And uh, this is from the One Mile at a Time website. And the headline is, Woman accidentally boards flight to United States. Last week, a 29-year-old Mexican citizen uh, named Mal... Uh, I want to say Mary... Mary, ooh, <laughs> Mary, Mary, Mary Jose Gamboa. <laughs> Mary Jose Gamboa was... I'll try and remember that. Was supposed to return home uh, from a vacation on Valaris. Uh, she was supposed to take the 727-mile two-hour domestic flight from uh, a place that I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce. I want to say... Garda, Galda, Garda, no, come on. I'll save it. I'll jump in with the life preserver. Please. It's Guadalajara. Thank you. To, to Tuxla Gutierrez. Right, okay. You can tell John's done these stories this week, can't you? I'm being punished, obviously. Uh, but I, I would have said that myself, but Armando jumped in. Of course, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Ironically I... enough, I've edited the military stories for Nevs and taken out all, all proper names. <laughs> oh, I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. Uh, anyway, so these two episodes, but it, accidentally they ended up uh, on the 2140 mile, that's a five hour international flight to Seattle. According to Gamboa, um, at that airport, a, Valar- a Valaris airline worker had directed her to change the line she was in while waiting for her flight. She boarded the flight from that line and somehow the gate agent didn't catch that she was about to board the wrong flight. Once on board the flight, there was someone uh, in her assigned seat. She showed the flight attendant her boarding pass and she also didn't catch that she was on the wrong flight and instead seated her somewhere else. About three hours into the flight, she was handed an immigration form for the United States. Since the woman didn't speak English, she was confused and asked the flight attendant for help and this is when it was discovered that she was on the wrong flight the flight attendant was shocked to learn that the traveler wasn't intending to fly to the united states and didn't have a passport the crew then asked her for a phone number to contact her family so that they could let the family know what was going on upon arriving in the united states a valaris employee accompanied gamboa in in the immigration hall uh, she was interviewed by immigration officers and then they escorted her back to her flight as she immediately returned to he's not listening sorry <laughs> uh, it returned back to her home country uh, on the same Valaris plane uh, repatriation paid for by Valaris officers told her uh, there'd be no negative record of this in the event that she wanted to travel to the United States in future throughout this ordeal Gamboa's family were obviously incredibly concerned as she hadn't arrived in Tuxtla, Tuxtla uh, as yes. planned. Thank you. Yeah, you. <laughs> Her family had been informed at the time that she had gone missing and that there was nothing Valaris representatives could do. Then the National Guard stepped in and told Valaris that they would have to f- file a missing persons report. Gamboa claims that upon eventually arriving uh, in Looks like it, yes. Thank you very much. Valerius employees blamed her for getting on the wrong flight. 
Now, I mean, I mean, there's loads of things that we can go. Thank you, for, first of all, to Armando for his excellent pronunciations. Uh, the the thing sure, that bothers the, the landscapers are just outside the window, like leaf blowing right Lovely. now, which is <laughs> very good, very busy. It's a, it's a busy old household. Uh, I mean, the thing that's sort of frustrating, I think, for for me uh, in this thing is uh, she was moved into a different line. That's fine. Mistakes are made. I think the bit that disturbs me the most, though, is the fact that they checked the ticket because somebody was sitting in her allocated seat and the person didn't actually think oh hello this is the wrong flight that's the bit that sort of surprises me i suppose so um you know if you're looking that closely at the ticket for a seat number i, I don't know i guess it could Andy be easily missed can jump in here i know i've had days when I, I only spent one year at an airline and i would have six leg days where i had no idea where i was uh you know, you get on the ground and you're and you're kind of doing paperwork and and you're trying to think what what city am I in right now? So I <laughs> I, yeah. I actually give the especially you know boarding is emotional for everyone. It's there's a lot going on yeah. and uh, the cabin crew is is super busy. Sure, this this is their job, but I think this is you know I, I can understand them looking briefly at a at a piece of paper boarding yeah. pass and uh, and just kind of in their head looking at the number because that's the thing that's being asked and not looking at the rest of the piece of paper yeah so, at least the cabin well, now the gate agents want... that's their job mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah if they if they run it behind they're going to be wanting to just get on with it quick look at the number oh yeah oh, they must have put it through the system wrong you know that can happen um it's the right time if you're for this story it's very home alone too isn't it <laughs> yes yes it is. yeah i'll give you yeah, that yeah. <laughs> but, and, and from a customs standpoint i, I think if they don't if they don't get off the aircraft, the Valeris is a Mexican registered airline. So I think if, as long as they don't get off the aircraft and they just keep her on there, the, I don't, there's no harm, no foul with customs and immigration mm. or anything. Although they did say that she was in the immigration hall and stuff and that a Valeris employee or representative met, met her in the, in the uh, hall, I guess, cause she probably got off with everybody else. Didn't she? Not really sure quite what to do. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, and she doesn't speak English as well, so it must have been quite frightening the whole yeah. ordeal for her. Yeah, absolutely. In a country where she, yeah, absolutely. Although, I dare say, because it is, it, yeah, I, I guess, um, you know, that they, they would once once she was sort of in the airport. I'm sure there would have been people there that could have helped her, if you see what I mean, in terms of the the language issue. But uh, yeah, a very a very sort of frightening story, really. I think certainly for her and her family, um, you know, to sort of end up. Uh, quite a, you know several thousand miles away from where she was expecting to be that's uh yeah frightening stuff yeah i did ha had a similar situation although hardly uh comparable uh because there are there was two aircraft uh next to each other at t5 at heathrow um three or four years ago uh, when i was flying uh, one was the glasgow flight one was the edinburgh flight and i think as many as three or four people ended up on the wrong flight. Obviously, there's something that was going wrong with the gates uh, and checking the um, boarding passes and this kind of stuff. But um, that did delay things. I mean, and thank goodness they spotted it before they actually, you know, departed because uh, they found that people were uh, on the wrong um, uh, on the wrong plane. Yeah. Obviously. Um, so I remember good. back in 2013. Christmas Eve, we had lot. No, the day before Christmas Eve, we had lots of storms. I got called out of standby on Christmas Eve to go to Gatwick to operate some delayed flights because aircraft all over the place. And you could see this coming. They parked two flights, exactly the same aircraft, look the same. One's going to Munich, 
one's going to Munich, both departing at the same time. Oh. So, oh wow. Okay. Yeah, and you can see what's coming. They're on the. Some people on there on the wrong flight. The bags were on there. Some bags were on there. The people were on here. It was an absolute mess. It's very easy to happen. Oh, were they both going to the same airport? Yes. Okay, so I suppose that's a slightly less complicated to try and tie. I suppose it's just like once you once you'd worked it out, I suppose you might just go and stand at the other belt if your your case didn't come out of the other belt. Uh, no, <laughs> but you can't you can't you can't fly the aircraft without the person and the correct bag on. That's it. It's a security rule. Okay, right. Yeah. So okay. you have to make sure that, that you've got to swap all the people around or swap the bags around. I mean, I challenge that slightly, only because Nev managed to go all the way on holiday without his bags. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because they didn't get on the aircraft. Well, I suppose there is that. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I'll give you that. Yeah. i tell you what, they, they could make things a bit easier. For, for the less experienced traveller, this code share business... Yeah. Uh, They've got to stop it. I, I honestly, it is so confusing if you're looking at the de- departure board, um, which says, you know, it's the BA fourteen thirty eight to Edinburgh, and it's AA this, and it's, um, you know, Qatar something else, and it's just this scrolling thing that goes around the whole time. I, I, I fail to see the advantage of that for any passengers at, at all. Uh, the, the, the whole co-chair thing has gone mad, in, in my opinion, and must lead to delay and confusion at, at the gate sometimes for, for those people that perhaps just don't travel very often. So, I mean, uh, forgive my naivety here, because obviously I, I've been lucky that I haven't had to sort of experience that, really. I mean, would it not make sense for each flight to sort of still exist on the departure board as an individual item? Um, well, it, it does, but, it, of course, it scrolls through all of the other... Um, code share flights so quite often there are four or five other uh, carriers right. that share the code uh, that share the flight with their own flight numbers and so it does actually go back to the ba 14 whatever it is right but if you just look at it for a while uh, and you know the, the scrolling isn't that fast perhaps um maybe i'm making uh, too much of this but i just think it's a another one of those things that that can lead to delay at the gate or, or getting to your flight you know if you're not familiar with it yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would be one of those people very easily confused by, by that because I don't do a great deal of flying. I mean, I suppose at least you have flying experience under your belt, so you almost know what you're looking out for. As where someone like me who does a flight once in a blue moon, um, you know, would be very confused about the fact because I wouldn't necessarily know that, for example, my American Airlines flight was actually a co-chair with BA and that it was a BA aircraft that I was getting on. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily know that information. Would it? I mean, would that? Would it say it on my boarding pass, for example, or would it just literally have a? A normals, you know, it would just have the the. If you were if you were flying a domestic flight, yes, but uh, quite often it, it will say also operated as co-chair with Singapore or right, you know, okay. American or whatever else. It this is. is what happens if you're from Ipswich, Matt. It's very confusing. Ooh, see what he did wow. there. Moving on. <laughs> Ooh. 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 Well, yeah. To be fair, I deserve that. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking well. of scary cities, uh, <laughs> yeah. we're going to go to <laughs> Dominican Republic. Nothing, no, that wasn't an Ipswich dig. Uh, <laughs> I've been to Ipswich. Um, uh, my so this, commis- my commiserations. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, this next story uh, is from simpleflying.com and, and CBC up in Canada. Uh, the Pivot Airlines is a Canadian airline. These um, pilots and flight crew were actually jailed in the Dominican Republic eight months ago. They've returned to the United States. 
the crew was in Punta Cana on April 5th about to take off when one of the crew members found one of the crew members found a bag in the avionics bay. The RCMP, the Royal uh, Canadian Mounted Police, right? The National Police and, and uh, local police were notified. Eventually found eight bags containing cocaine totaling 210 grams, uh, kilograms. Sorry, that's a lot of cocaine. Um, the crew were arrested and remained in some cells for nine days. According to the crew, they were threatened daily by other imprisoned drug traffickers who threatened the crew with violence if they did not transfer any money. After nine days, the crew was freed on bail, but their passports were confiscated and ordered to remain in the Dominican Republic. Uh, the crew was freed. However, the airline says that they had to live under armed guard most of the uh, time because of death threats. Less than a month ago, on November 11th, prosecutors for the public ministry in the Dominican Republic announced that the case against the Canadians was being closed due to not enough evidence being found to substantiate the accusations. So this pivot crew was jailed eight months ago, returned to Canada this week. Uh, loved ones were uh, greeted them with hugs and tears at Toronto's Pearson International Airport after flying home on WestJet. Um, this story is interesting because, um, Andy, I'd be interested to hear, do you guys get tested uh, every once in a while? Not drug tested, but um, do, do the security services at some of these airports um run exercises with you guys because the the US TSA does to make sure that we are complying with our required security checks um it depends where we're going because of course you you've just got TSA huge country whereas we jump into all sorts of different countries all sorts of different rules some do some don't we get rab checked a lot but that's mainly just documentation um checking that everything's on the manifest as it should be but no not very often do they start rooting around in avionics bays they do check the holds when they do a ramp check but they don't really go into much more detail than that yeah the 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 u.s tsa does actually they have these you know toy sort of weapons and daggers and and uh improvised explosive devices that are you know obviously fake they're you know, painted bright orange or something like that. Yeah. But they will, they will actually at, at some of our, um, site airports or secure airports, they'll, they'll actually test to see if the crews and the, and the ground crews are doing their required security checks. But this was always a fear of mine. Uh, I used to work quite a bit in South America. I think my first 10 years in the air force, I was, uh, funny enough, I, I worked in counter drug. So I was chasing these guys around the, the bad guys, and uh, and it was always a fear for us that that something would get stashed by a ground crew, a um, well, I mean, even a somebody on your own crew, because we had you know pretty big. Uh, the air crews themselves were small, but we had a, a large footprint with maintenance uh, and all the support personnel. So every time we sent an aircraft down or two aircraft, you know, we probably had thirty or forty people. Now everybody's bags are are potentially you know, uh, able to be compromised by, the, and, and it was a thing. It was a thing. Some of our, our fellow army crews got busted uh, with drugs in their, um, some of their aircraft compartments. But this was, and unfortunately, even in uniform in the military, we would go through U.S. Customs just like everybody else, and our aircraft would be searched, and, and our bags would get searched, and the dogs would come out. But uh, I, I feel bad for these guys. 
you know, if it was genuine, 210 kilograms of of uh, cocaine, that also makes a pretty big difference in your weight and balance, doesn't it? I was about to say, I hope it was on the load sheet. <laughs> ah, quite. <laughs> wow, uh, I do me. like Dirk S's comment as well. That's more cocaine than the A320 in Colombia had fuel on board upon touchdown. <laughs> yes. Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? Goodness me. Oh, and on that, yes, before we get into more hot water, Andy, I wonder if you could take the next story, please. Yes, certainly. <laughs> so this is uh, Alaska Airlines debuts digital bag tags, but they don't come cheap. And this is from the pointsguy.com. Uh, Alaska Airlines has officially become the first US airline to offer digital bag tags for checked luggage. The Seattle-based carrier announced on Wednesday that it was successfully debuted an electronic bag tags device in partnership with the Dutch company Bagtag. That's an original name, isn't it? <laughs> At launch, these electronic bag tags are being sent to 2,500 Alaska Mileage Plan Elite members for the first round of testing. Eligible elites who will receive a bag tag are those who have travelled in the last 12 months, checked at least one bag and were among the first to register to use the device. The airline expects to roll out these devices more broadly next year. When it does, the devices themselves won't be cheap. They'll roughly run for around $70 each. That said, the airline estimates a roughly 40% reduction in the time spent in check-in lobby when using the new technology. After attaching the device to your bag, you can activate it starting 24 hours before your flight during the process on Alaska's mobile app. At launch, only single-passenger domestic itineraries that include just a single checked bag are supported. You also need to qualify for complimentary checked bags in order to use the electronic bag tags. This includes those with Alaska's co-branded credit cards, mileage plan and One World Elites, Club 49 members and first-class travellers. Though Alaska plans to remove these restrictions as the technology is more broadly rolled out. After completing mobile check-in, the bag tag device will sync with your phone through an antenna that powers and reads the information transmitted from the Alaska mobile app. The device's e-paper screen will then display your digital bag tag. When you arrive at the airport, you'll approach the baggage drop-off counter and bypass any kiosks or desks. You'll need to present your government-issued ID and your bag will be then be on its way. As for the bag tag itself, it doesn't require charging or batteries and it can withstand being run over by a luggage cart. Wow. <laughs> Alaska's team successfully tested its durability by running it over with a truck. I hope it was more than once. The device is attached to your bag using an industrial-strength plastic zip tie, but the airline recommends placing an identification tag inside your suitcase in case the device were to fall off. While Alaska is the first US-based airline to debut electronic bag tags, this technology is already alive or has been piloted with various international carriers such as the Lufthansa Group, Air France, KLM and China Southern. The luxury luggage brand Remoa even joined the electronic bag tag program with pre-installed devices on its popular metal hard shells. Mm. Well, mm. They're I mean, quite expensive though, aren't they? $70 each. That's yeah, and I, I just don't believe this. I mean, it's, it's an electronic device. You, you cannot say it's indestructible. That's impossible. Yeah. yeah. yeah and that little screen because i saw the picture that you put up mm. i mean if that if that gets smashed then that's it your bags your bags just missing mm. yeah 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it's not. Um, I'm just sort of trying to find a, 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 a sort of a, a good example of it. Really, it's. It looks like it's like a little. Um, it's like the screen you used to get on a calculator, isn't it, Nev? It's got that same sort of like sort of dot matrixy style sort of yes. yeah. sort of screen. I mean, as you say, so the like test- a sort of a, a Kindle screen is that the mm. same type of thing? Uh, yeah. yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Just not yeah. as many pixels. I think that's yeah. safe to say. Um, well, I mean. I think, so- uh, I think only one of us qualifies as an eligible elite. Um, so, Nev? Nev, yeah, you? When, when you're having yours, yes. <laughs> well, I don't. I've stopped checking luggage in. Right, yes, I don't blame uh, you. <laughs> because I'm not going through that again. Uh, although I may have to because I'm off to Dallas and Portland uh, in February, so I will have to do some checking there. But um, mm. for any other thing that I do, I'm just not checking bags yeah. at, the moment at all um, because I've, of I've, delay in general. Yeah. So I mean, there's I don't a... understand how it doesn't. Sorry, Matt. I don't understand how it doesn't require charging or batteries. How how is it yeah, going to last weird. forever? I, well, I mean, unless it's one of those ten-year um, lithium uh, lithium mm. batteries, perhaps the same that they use in computers that yeah. keep the clock running and things oh, like okay. that. Perhaps. Well, and that type of crystal, that type of display, a bit like the um, uh, Kindle display, as as you guys were saying, uh, once the power has been used to bring that image up, it doesn't actually require power to keep it there. So it's like it's one of those. So it's a little burst of power, but then for the rest of that day, the rest of that flight, etc., etc., you don't need power to because you haven't got to change the image. That image will now remain for the duration of the time that it has that tag on it. If you see what I mean, uh, some of the other no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gen- genuinely, that, that's one of the reasons why Kindles their battery lasts so long. You know, it's why you just give it a little charge and it'll last for three weeks because it, it it is literally it's like a, it's an etch sketch basically, but but electronic. That's that's the best way I can describe it. So it's that same sort of thing where you don't need power. Anyway, by the by, uh, it's uh, one um, one per ta- one tag per bag uh, are the uh, some of the restrictions on there. The tags can be shared between people, obviously not on the same flight. Um, it requires uh, a phone with Bluetooth and an NFC capability. I think virtually every phone has that now. Uh, a quick po- point about the Remoa. Uh, they've actually discontinued the product uh, that had been in the hard shell case an integrated bag tag however they do still work with bag tag a company providing the software for them and the units sold are still functional uh and uh john was particularly interested when he was doing these details about why it didn't work with remoa um and he's saying just because there wasn't enough integration which i think is probably the case um it'll probably it'll be something simple like a protocol that they're using to get that information across is not um perhaps embedded in that in that system they again Again, they might have changed their their mind at the last minute uh, and changed, uh, you know, perhaps for security reasons or or anything like that. And of course, the one of the other things, as you would expect John to sort of pick up on, is the fact is this does feel like it's a way of trying to minimise people being involved in you know the airport and getting your you, you on that plane. You know, it, this does well, look like a like a way well, of. We're already at that point now, though, aren't we? Um, with bag. You tag your own bag, then drop it. You don't talk true, to anybody. True, yeah, yeah. I suppose it takes out that step. And if it if it does work and is proved to work and is developed, then it cuts down on all those bag tags and all the rubbish and everything, doesn't it? So I suppose it, 
it could be a good thing for the future. I don't know. Yeah, seventy pounds, seventy dollars though. I think is is still way too much for something like that, isn't it? I think you know. I mean, I mean, I I wouldn't pay it personally. I'd rather just put a bit of paper on it. You know, it's the thing. But is that you know? I mean, if that's a you know, if the, if the airline wants to go down that route, then perhaps it should be their responsibility. Well, as well, seventy pounds, seventy dollars for the the first sort of round here. But again, as technology improves, it might drop to mm. ten, fifteen dollars in the mm. future. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, true. I'm sure it will drop, as you say. Well, um, just from one bit of reasonably good news to some very bad news. Mm. Um, On the BBC.com website, uh, it says uh, air passengers are told to expect serious disruption. Uh, People face serious disruption at UK airports over Christmas due to planned strikes by border staff, the Home Secretary has warned. Suella Bravman said that people should think carefully about their plans as they may well be impacted. Staff at six airports will stage walkouts from the 23rd of December to Boxing Day and from the 28th of December to New Year's Eve. The strikes come at one of the busiest times for travel and coincide with walkouts by train and rail workers. Uh, It's the first Christmas since 2019 that airlines have been able to operate without widespread COVID restrictions. Up to 2 million passengers are expected to arrive between the 23rd and the 31st of December at the airports where the strikes will take place, according to the uh, aviation analytics firm Sirium. It said that more than 10,000 flights are scheduled to arrive at Heathrow, London Gatwick, Manchester, Birmingham, Cardiff and Glasgow Airport during that period. Around 1,000 public and commercial services union members, that's the PCS union, including people who work in passport control, are taking industrial action after the Home Office offered workers a 2% pay rise instead of the 10% that they requested. A report in the Times said that airlines have been advised to cancel up to 30% of their flights over the eight days of strikes to prevent disruption at airports. Uh, The government said it will draft in military personnel to help minimise disruption if the walkouts go ahead. But travel experts Simon Calder said that doesn't make up for the decades of expertise and experience that the Border Force staff have, so you're going to see queues building up. Comrade Andy. Yes. uh, I like that, Comrade Andy. (laughs) So you you know what the first comment's going to be then? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I have have no issue with the right to strike at all, and I think the state this country's in at the moment, everybody has every right to do it. Right, that's the political side, Dom. I am working over that period, 23rd, 24th and 25th, I've already, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I've already resigned myself to the fact that it's going to be an absolute nightmare because the problem for the airlines is going to come at the point where the immigration hall is full and then they won't let anybody mm. else off aircraft. True. So we're going, to be, we're going to be pulling on stand and we're going to have to sit there for hours with the passengers on board. And then, of course, there's the knock-on delay to the next flight. Then you've got to start thinking about uh, flight time limitations and hours for the crew. It... it it is going to be a very tricky time for everybody travelling. Yeah, and we've already had this, haven't we, you know, with airport capacity limitations and stuff like yeah. that. And even today, well, this week, um, at Heathrow on, uh, what day was it? It was Tuesday. Once again, we sat on um, very near the apron, but because the stand guidance hadn't been turned on, we're, we're stuck there for 20 minutes still on the aircraft so any time that we'd made up on the way there 
um, was evaporated by the time we actually pulled onto the onto the stand. Um, but this is um, this is a real problem now because the airports and the airlines need that revenue yeah, yeah. back into the system uh, after you know two and a half three years really of really poor uh, load factors and revenue because of what's happened. Um, and I just hope there's a solution here somewhere. You know. Oh, Andy, you've, you've become a Dalek briefly. So. <laughs> It'll probably settle down in a minute. We'll just give it a minute. But um, I must admit, and again, I don't want to get too political all about this, and I completely understand, as, as Andy said, you know, completely understand everybody's right to, to strike. That's fine. You know, things are perhaps not as good in this country at the moment as as i would like to think because i love this country very much um and i'm very concerned about some of the things that are going on in it uh, my sadness i think uh for this is uh, and i understand why they're choosing this time of year to do it because obviously it will absolutely make a point but these people have and it's a bit like when it was all going a bit wrong in the summer do you know what i mean these people have been you know going on holiday is not a cheap thing to do so people will have saved lots of money to do these things and all of their holidays are now essentially going to be potentially ruined by um this this strike action as i say and i completely get the the reasons why they're doing it they're right to be doing it but i do feel that there's an a, a better time or a better way that they could be doing this uh, and that's my frustration i think really with this I, i'm really worried that um you know uh, very very good people who um are going on holiday you know perhaps their only holiday of the year or even worse they're going to go and see family or friends or relatives that they haven't seen for a very very long time and they've waited to christmas to go and do it as part of you know sort of maybe seeing them for the last time or or anything like that you know um i i just i'm i'm desperately concerned for um the people who are going on holiday and the people like the cabin crew and the pilots and everything who through no fault of their own will also have their christmases and new year times disrupted for just doing their job well kind of along those lines can I offer a, a personal mm. you know opinion on this one is you know give it up for your for your military people so if you work in the in the motor pool if you work in the finance shop if you work at an engine shop and next thing you know there's a strike happening and you are checking passports at Heathrow. Um, <laughs> True. Yeah. And there goes your holiday. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, it's a a testament to the to the people that serve both. You know, the the military members themselves, the spouses, and the government civilians that support all the militaries and in, in our our friendly and partner coalition countries. That something like this happens, a natural disaster happens. And and people don't think twice about jumping in to help. And you just get a phone call one day that says, hey, you're not going to work there at Bryce Norton. You're getting on a bus and you guys are going to sleep on cots in a in a gym somewhere near the airport for the next two weeks. And you'll be checking passports and doing security. Wow. Andy, is your, uh, how's your mic sounding at the moment? Is that any, any better? I don't know. Yes. Yes, it Sanding is. Sounding fabulous, yes. Did you want to come back on that? Sorry. Yeah, so, so the point was exactly what you saying. That this is the most important time of year for an airline. Um, it, it, we Airlines make a lot of money in that, in that two weeks. And if it's all going wrong again, then the passengers are just going to blame the airlines once again because they got blamed for the 
disaster of the summer because not enough ground handlers and stuff like that. So it's harm on everybody. But if you're going to do a strike, you've got to do it where it hurts the most, haven't you? If you want to get your point across. So I know, yeah. but I, I do. I do feel that they, again. Yes, you're absolutely right. But I just, I just think not now when. When everybody else is, all, you know, everybody's already on their knees. You know, it's, you know, we're all terrified about how much of how much it's going to cost. I mean, it's turned cold here. Admittedly, it's only minus two here tonight. Um, you know, but you know, our, our electricity is, you know, I mean, we've we've used um, what seventy two quid's worth of gas and electricity in a really short period of time. We're all absolutely terrified about where this is going. So this might, for many people, be like their last ditch attempt to have a holiday, and it's all now going to be ruined because of people striking. And you're right, you know, it, it will absolutely have the impact that they want, and I guess that's what they they're hoping is it will force the government to sort of, you know, come around the table and strike a deal so that it doesn't go ahead. But I don't think they're going to and I'm just, I, I, it's you know as you say it's like Armando's added another layer to it so it's not only the, the likes of you Andy and, and, and the passengers and the cabin crew and all that kind of thing but it's going to be the, you know the military families and everything although they're also going to be massively oh, yeah. inconvenienced while they try and and you know do what they can to keep things running so you're completely right it's of course the time that they're going to do it because it'll have the maximum impact I'm just worried for everyone else <laughs> well, let's move on before I start talking about the government. Okay, right. <laughs> now this next this next story, Matt. Uh, sometimes we get stories which are which have similarities or or even repetition. I have never heard of a situation uh, like the one that you are about to this, describe. This is this is a different situation, I think, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, yeah, we'll we'll go into detail as best we can anyway. So this is coming from Aviation Twenty Four BE uh, Sky News as well on this one, and the headline is fake childbirth. Call, call forces Pegasus Airlines flight to divert to Barcelona in Spain. A strange incident occurred on flight uh, Papa Charlie 652 of Pegasus Airlines in the very early morning of 7th of December. The flight uh, uneventfully departed from Casablanca Airport in Morocco with destination Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, around 1 hour 45 minutes into the flight, a passenger claimed she started labour, forcing the crew to divert to Barcelona in Spain. Authorities say that once the plane touched down, a group of 28 people exited and tried to flee. The police managed to stop half of the group, but 14 escaped uh, officers at the airport and remain at large. The woman who doctors later found was pregnant but not about to give birth was arrested on suspicion of public disorder offences. Spanish authorities said five of the people who were caught agreed to be put back on the flight from the Moroccan city of Casablanca to Istanbul. The rest are being processed for non-admission to Spain. According to authorities, it is expected they, along with the women, the woman who allegedly faked giving birth, will be put on another Pegasus flight out of the country. I mean, this is just such a bizarre... I don't even know where to begin with that. Uh, <laughs> it's just such a bizarre situation, isn't it? I suppose this is... I mean, I guess no air bridge on this particular case, so it's probably just a set of steps at the... Um, you know, uh, you know, on on the aircraft type sort of thing, and it's mm. like so they opened the doors and basically did a runner. I mean, how did they get on there in the first place? That's the other question. <laughs> There's a lot of questions. There is a lot of questions, uh, 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 and yeah, uh, and we've only had sort of 
30% of the answers there, I think. Uh, yeah, but, indeed. Uh, yeah, amazing. Yes, uh, Mark on the WhatsApp number is just saying, wow, it sounds like the, it sounds like the storyline to a film, this. <laughs> yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it does. Uh, speaking of films, um, uh, next story says that uh, British Airways brings Paramount Plus on board. This is on the uh, Aero website. Uh, BA is going to offer content from streaming video provider Paramount Plus on board its long-haul fleet. The partnership offers passengers access to an increased range of entertainment content, but stops a step short of bringing true streaming to all passengers on board. Uh, customers will be able to watch a curation of exclusive uh, Paramount Plus series targeting all ages on the airline's high-life entertainment platform, including Halo, The Offer, Queen of the Universe, Camp Coral, SpongeBob's Under Years, iCarly, Yellowstone and the Star Trek series. The content will be available on the carrier's embedded IFE screens across all cabins on the long-haul fleet. Passengers will also be presented with an option to subscribe to Paramount Plus as part of the offering, allowing them to continue watching before and after their flight. British Airways will also offer a complimentary month of service to bronze, silver and gold tier members of the company's executive club loyalty programme. Key to this offering, however, is that it is not open access to the streaming library whilst in flight. Indeed, passengers won't be streaming the content at all, despite all the planes carrying high-speed in-flight internet systems on board. Instead, the airline and Paramount will stage a selection of episodes from many series into the high-life entertainment system. Passengers can choose from those episodes on board. On the plus side, British Airways and Paramount hosted a cool activation at Heathrow where five Star Trek characters pass through the terminal in search of their flight. Unsuspecting customers and colleagues were taken by surprise as the Starfleet cadre made its way through the airport to board USS Enterprise Flight 1701 to Starbase One. <laughs> oh, dear. I love that. I love well, that. Well, it's sort of a streaming here? service, but not a streaming service, isn't it, really? Essentially what it is... Yeah, is the story it... being... So it's the story B have added some more things to their in-flight entertainment system and you can have a subscription to Paramount Plus if you pay for it. Pretty much. I mean this is essentially yeah. this is essentially content that's been provided by Paramount Plus into their system, I suppose. It's essentially a glorified sponsorship deal, isn't it? That's that's what it yeah. is. Uh that that is essentially what it is. Having said that, I have recently subscribed to Paramount Paramount Plus. Um I've got a one month free subscription and I'm currently very much enjoying Star Trek the next generation, but we'll gloss over that and move on. Uh <laughs> So, I mean, Nev, presumably you'd be entitled to a, a one-month subscription or something well, as part of your I'll, status. I'll give it a go. Yeah. I'll see, see how good it is. I've got uh, yeah, a couple of long-haul flights coming up in February. Well, so, uh, yes. Indeed. But I think that's what it is. As I say, it's, like, it's mm. not a streaming deal at all, is it? Let's be, let's yeah. be honest. I mean, it's content from Paramount that has been supplied to BA, um, you know, and will be available on their platform. Hmm. Yes. i got to admit, I'm a sucker for this. Um American Airlines did this with Apple Plus, and the first time that I watched Ted Lasso was on an airliner, and I think when I got on the I watched both episodes that they offered, and about an hour later, I subscribed to Apple Plus. So That is quality entertainment, though. Other services are available, but that is, Ted Lasso is quality. <laughs> it is. I, I could, well, we're already watching it 
a second time again. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I was a bit excited about the fact that you know SpongeBob SquarePants was available on there. I didn't know that was there. Oh. I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have to look that up when, <laughs> as soon as we finish this. I think. <laughs> I must be getting old because I only recognise SpongeBob and Star Trek out of that list. Yeah, I don't yeah, know what the rest were. Me too. Were. Yeah. Yeah. Did you like well, the way I read it? As if I knew all yeah, of the uh, absolutely yeah, <laughs> all yeah, the yeah, content. Yeah. 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 Consumer yeah. professional. Yeah. Uh, Mark Rettinger, you've got shares in it, Nev. That's why. <laughs> well, you see, we, you know, we're all getting getting a bit older now, aren't we? So we're not. We can't be expected to know everything. But no. of course, some of the uh, more mature people are also being recruited into the airlines as well. And, uh, he's great. He's great with the segues, isn't he? Oh, Mando's going to tell us all about segue. that. I know. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. man, like we, a TV presenter. We need, we need to spray it in gold and just sort of turn <laughs> it into an award, don't we? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, show us how it's done. Teach me, Sensei. Um, <laughs> EasyJet. Oh, EasyJet. <laughs> they're, they're going on a hiring spree, and rather than targeting the youth, like Nev said, it is actually targeting senior citizens in its uh, pursuit to recruit more flight attendants, over the last year, EasyJet has seen a 30% increase in new flight attendants over the age of 60. So there's still hope for all of us. Um, over the last four years, EasyJet saw a 27% increase in new flight attendants over the age of 45. Hey, that's pretty young. Um, now, EasyJet specifically targeting those older groups in a re new recruiting drive aimed at empty nesters. That's a very nice way to put it. <laughs> Uh, the airline explains that its new initiative is coming on the heels of a new survey in the UK suggesting that 78% of Britons are resolved to take on new challenges once their children leave home and uh, nearly 60% are open to new careers. So this new campaign that they're uh, you know, broadcasting out and Matt is posting some pictures spotlights a, a number of older EasyJet cabin crew members who have joined the airline in the last year, including Neil Brown, who is a young 59 years old, Peter Wanless, who is 68, Mike Tier, 57, Gary Fellows, 63, and Carlos Santa Monica, who's 48 years old. Come on, he's not, that's, not even, that's not even old enough to qualify for uh, AARP here in the U.S. <laughs> um, EasyJet is thinking that older workers bring a wealth of life experience and transferable skills, including superior customer service skills and knowledge over how to deal with people. I will agree with that. Uh, making them ideal candidates to uh, work a customer-facing role for the airline. So, for example, Neil Brown, he was an engineer for three decades. Now he has followed in the footsteps of his daughter and become a flight attendant in 2019. Um, referring to Karen, 54 years old, and Daniela, 21 years old, a mother-daughter flight attendant team, Mike Brown, who is the director of cabin services for EasyJet, explained that at EasyJet, our people are at the heart of everything we do and that it's the warm, welcome, and fantastic customer service that our cabin crew are famous for. Karen and Daniela are a great example of how being cabin crew is a fantastic job, no matter what your age. So we want to encourage even more people like them to join us. If you've got a passion for travel and people and want a job that's different every day, that's the truth. Uh, then we can't wait to welcome you on board as part of the team. So hey, do you agree? Go ahead. Yeah, well, no, I, I mean, I, I, the bit that I'm worried about now is that at 48, you're now classed as a senior citizen, are you? That's... <laughs> right, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> you mm. know, I mean, having just recently celebrated a birthday last week, you know, turning 46, and, and then I was saying I'm two years away from being officially old. 
Get your bus pass, <laughs> though, mate. Well, that, that's true. That's true. Does, does that mean I get the winter payment allowance as well? Because that'll help. <laughs> yeah, don't you get a discount on the National Rail, too? Yeah, sure, why not? I, I, did, get, so. I did actually get my uh, senior rail card oh. um, just the other day. Did you? Yeah. Only just now. Oh, I, I know. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a year, I'm a year late, actually, <laughs> as it happens. But, yeah. yeah. Wow, uh, indeed. Uh, okay, brutal. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, j- interestingly, actually, something that j- John's put uh, in the notes here on a serious note. If anyone wants to apply and wants to know more about life as crew, contact the show, and we'll put you in touch with some of the amazing crew members that we've had on the show in the past. So yeah, if you are genuinely interested, uh, get in touch with us, and we can put you in touch with some amazing people who who do exactly that for their job every single day. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I- I will agree with one point, which is I think young individuals today could learn a thing or two about customer service from uh, people that grew up without devices and digital on in, not in the digital age. Yeah, um, I think I think it is a good way to mentor young um, cabin crew, and to be honest, even pilots. Like we, yeah. I've I learned a lot from from those that are in the sunset years of their career. Mm. I, I enjoy flying with them actually. Absolutely. They have the best stories, I find. (laughs) Yes. Well, we're always talking about uh, a lack of homes and and building possibilities uh, here in uh, Great Britain generally and and, and Northern Ireland and what have you. Um, But this is an interesting take on uh, what could be possible at one of the airports, Andy. Yeah, so this is a hangar homes are planned for Enniskillen Airport. And this is from flyingisland.com, fly.co.uk, and their own website, Hangar Homes. Um, Ten hangar homes could be built at Enniskillen Airport, Northern Ireland. If developer Peter Day's plans are approved by the local council, Peter and his planning consultant recently met with uh, two leading local councillors and the head of development at the town hall to discuss the scheme, which was described as very positive. Speaking after the meeting, he said, On Thursday, I signed an option agreement with the landowner to purchase the site for Enniskillen Aeropark. That word's very easy, but when I start reading it, it just doesn't come out right. <laughs> uh, subject to getting planning permission, which I am confident will be granted and lead it to be the first aeropark in the UK. He went on to say that because Enniskillen Airport is in one of the most beautiful parts of Northern Ireland, whose local economy is based on tourism, these hangar homes must be used as holiday homes for pilots and their families, who could also rent them out short-term to other pilots and their guests. In addition to roadside and airside access, each hangar home will also have access to Loch Urn via a private slipway to the river north of the site for boat fish, sorry, for boating, fishing and even golf, thankfully, on the other side of the lake. (laughs) Enniskillen Airfield is set in one of the most picturesque areas of Northern Ireland and is located just three nautical miles north of the town on the shores of the loch. The airfield was first built in 1941 and used during World War II as RAF's law. Since 1996, it has been a private ownership as a civilian airfield with scheduled flights operating from there until 2006. It is one of only five licensed airfields in Northern Ireland and is an ideal base to tour the whole of Ireland as holiday homes for pilots. 
uh, with the support of both the airfield owner and the land owner of the field adjacent to the disused part of the eastern taxiway, a planning application is being submitted for 10 hangar homes plus one to be used as a clubhouse for residents and visiting pilots. With a 10 metre by 5 metre swimming pool, a hope it's heated, jacuzzi, <laughs> sauna and steam room in the hangar, uh, a gym in the garage, changing rooms and showers in the entrance hall and an aviation-themed restaurant and bar upstairs overlooking the airfield and the lakes. Should planning permission be granted, then the hangar homes could be available in 2023, after which the clubhouse will be built. And each hangar home would include uh, a detached home with 190 square of living space. It's quite a bit. Uh, as by 9 metres by 3 metre hangar underneath your home, underfloor heating for all rooms upstairs, a fitted kitchen with built-in appliances, uh, a balcony for outdoor living overlooking the airfield, and a balcony for the master and second bedroom, and a driveway with front and side gardens. Well, that sounds very fancy. <laughs> it certainly does. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm loading it now, Armando. Uh, I believe you've uh, got something to say on this. Uh, yeah, and um, here I was actually really surprised to hear that this is the first uh, air park hangar community in the UK. Um, I I don't know the exact number. I I, I looked for this. Um, it's anywhere between four hundred and six hundred private air parks. Now that air parks here in the US are are, are pretty common, fairly popular. Um, I just in the Charlotte area, there's at least five or six um and it is it is literally a subdivision um matt has a picture there of spruce creek that's one of the most famous ones it's down in florida um there there are hundreds of homes every home has a hangar uh attached or maybe detached but the streets often double as taxiways so the street signs are are usually only about two or three feet off the ground, so a, a low wing piper can can wing can get over it. The mailboxes are low to the ground. Um, there, it is. A, it's actually a pretty popular and common way for pilots to live here. Um, a lot, actually, most of the Reno pilots that we've interviewed on the show live at some sort of air park. Um, I even so personally. Even in the middle of nowhere in Clovis, New Mexico, where I used to live for uh, about five years, there are air parks in New Mexico. And me and some friends rented an Airbnb house at an air park. And we took a couple airplanes, three airplanes, and flew them to this part of is uh, just south of Albuquerque. And they, uh, it was great. I mean, we, we, we didn't have a car, but we flew three airplanes in. And parked them, you know, two in the hangar, one out front, just like it, it's such a a common thing here. Even last year, we were looking before we bought this house, we were looking at a property just on uh, on Lake Norman that just required a little bit too much developing for our like we didn't want to take on that big of a project. It was it was pretty uh, pretty steep grade, but it was at at uh, Long Island Air Park, which is here at, in Lake Norman. And our plan was to build a small home with a with a hangar about the same size, about two two thousand square feet, twenty five hundred square feet, but have a forty foot by forty foot hangar so we could keep one or two airplanes in there. Um, yeah, pretty common here in the U.S. Mm. I think the big difference comes in cost. 
for GA flying over there versus uh, the UK. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's sure. really expensive now. That's why I don't do it. I'd like yeah. to do it for fun, but if I'm spending half my wages on it, what well, what's the point? True. Oh, yeah, and we've talked about this on the show. When I was when I first lived in the UK in 2005, the exchange rate was uh, $2.5 to the pound, which made me renting a Piper Cub, because both times I lived in Barry St. Edmunds, Ruffham Airfield. Uh, at the time, that would have cost me about $300 an hour for a Piper Cub, which is about uh, $220 more than you should be paying for one. <laughs> Right. And uh, but then the, the the second time I lived over there with the exchange rate being a little bit more favorable towards us, I was able to do some GA flying. But it was still, yeah, you're. I mean, it is expensive. Over there. Mm. Mm, indeed, but maybe this is the answer, though. Perhaps, perhaps you know, if, if if GA flying is more commonplace, perhaps it'll drive the price down, and and um, you know the the sort of the aero parks thing could be more of a thing. You know, yeah. I mean, as you say, it's it's not uncommon in the states at all, is it? Now, and that 600 number of air parks, that's, that's actual air parks, like subdivision uh, developed areas. That doesn't count the, the thousands, literally thousands of private airstrips here in the U.S. where yeah. if you've just got enough land and you can put a 3,000-foot runway <laughs> um, on your land, you know, graded out, and then the, there's, I mean, if you just look at a, a VFR sectional of any part of the U.S., you'll see private airstrips all, all over the place. True. True that. I know what uh, Carlos is like about buying aviation <laughs> memorabilia and things. Uh, I thought Armando might be interested in talking to us about this next story, uh, where the URL is www.thisiswhyimbroke.com <laughs> forward slash gifts for pilots. Well, quite. <laughs> as it's coming up to Christmas. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm going to start the story by saying... Uh, my company is Corvus Aviation at the Concord Regional Airport. Feel free uh-huh. to send any of these to uh, <laughs> 9100 Aviation Boulevard. Right, Concord, right very good. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, <on>. so <laughs> I think I think this would be this list. This is the the high flying holiday gifts for any pilot or uh, aviation enthusiast or just Carlos by himself. Um, this is a list that I found. It it, it showed up in my feed and then. Uh, the actual website has the links to these items, but uh, there, I actually whittled it down. There was like 55 items, and I, I think 51 of them I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, I could totally use one of these. But the, fir- the first one on this, which I th- actually thought was pretty cool, was a turbojet espresso machine. Matt's got it on the screen there. Is it, it's literally some kind of espresso machine in the shape of a, of a jet engine. Um, man, this is a piece of artwork. The... Uh, the next couple, and I don't know, we can we can kind of jump in and out, but some there's some vintage aircraft instrument drink coats, coasters for twenty five dollars. Um, yeah, that's my dog. Uh, <laughs> for maybe you guys should read this. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, the um, what else have we got there? We've got the. Uh, uh, U.S. Air Force F fifteen E optical illusion lamp. Uh, a my pilot pro gopro pro mount um and for so that's good that's good because everybody records their flights nowadays so a gopro yeah. mount is perfect 100 bucks how about uh for 40 dollars you could get a personalized cartoon pilot portrait ah. that is all <laughs> uh, yeah um just 
moving a bit further down. Oh, I also ten... didn't know the bassist from Queen was a pilot as well. Uh, no, <laughs> I, was, I was about to say that's uh, quite spectacular. Uh, moving further down the list uh, there, Matt, is some aviation socks uh, for a mere $10. Uh, oh, very lovely. Well, keep scrolling down to the next one, which is a reusable travel urinal. Oh, yeah, that's, that's my favourite. <laughs> oh, my goodness. There are, I've got a lot of questions about that, but none of which I could uh, ask on, on a live show, I don't think. But, uh, the, pic- the, the hand on the left, Nev, is your answer. <laughs> uh, <Wow. laughs> anyway, the next one is a pilot jokes book. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need one of those when you're yeah. here, I can. Yeah. A small volume, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's only six ninety nine. Nev uh, oh, yeah. tells its yeah. own story, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the better ones is there's a scratch off uh, travel map poster, which you know you can take a co- a coin and scratch off your the places that you've been or you want to go. It's for twenty three dollars. I actually had one of those for a long time. It's pretty cool. Um, as Nev, that. you could. You, Scratch off a good chunk of the world, huh? Yeah. Well, a lot of Europe, certainly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Let's see, Microsoft Flight Simulator. That's a good one. Microsoft MSFS20. That's uh, only $100. Mm. Um, Oh, this one here, isn't it? Andy. Andy, the the Navihawk timekeeping watch. That's. Yes. Tell me you have a. You have have an aviator's watch, don't you? Oh, yes, of course. Okay. (laughs) I was going to say, we. It, it is one of these these things where you you meet a milestone. Sometimes it's your your commercial certificate, your commercial license. Sometimes it's your ATP. But I think every every pilot deserves to treat themselves to something. Mine was a watch. I don't know when did you get yours. I've got I've got the same watch as Nev, but the Red Arrows version. What's it called? The Citizen. Oh, it's Skyhawk. Uh, the Skyhawk. Yeah, I got yeah. that. When I got my first proper full time job, and I've got uh, a Breitling as well that I got, uh, my wife got me for for Christmas. Oh wow! A couple of years yeah. back. Yeah. Nothing. Well, nothing nothing says I'm a pilot when you walk into the room like having a Breitling, you know, huge watch. chunky watch. <laughs> yeah. Um, Matt, if you have the website up there, you can scroll down to the Thunderstreak fighter plane ejection seat. Um, oh, I'm, I'm glad it's an ejection seat. I didn't know what a thunderstreak was. <laughs> I had a totally different answer in my head. Uh, <laughs> Only eighty three hundred bucks. That's a uh, buy two. That's, yeah. that's actually within uh, Carlos's budget for <laughs> filling out his his home. Oh, right. Yeah, I'm amazed he hasn't gone down some kind of like, you know, sort of like, you know, I, I don't, to be fair, I don't think he'd go down the fighter plane ejection seat. It would definitely be, um, you know, one from a, from a commercial plane. If he could yeah. get his hands on one of the seats from the, from a, from a TriStar L1011, I think he'd probably wet himself, but. <laughs> yeah. You can just imagine, you know, Gemma, you know, trying to get in the door one day and yeah. say, asking, uh, Carl, what is Martin Baker exactly? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is this precisely? Uh, on yes. the credit card bill, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I managed, I managed to pick, to pick this list that you've put in the uh, show notes. Uh, what? That what's what Star Trek episode was that? We didn't understand you. <laughs> so did you speaking Klingon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're just a Dalek. <laughs> I can't hear a word. <laughs> It'll come back in a minute. It'll come back in a minute. Uh, oh. No endorsement of Paramount Plus, but long live and prosper to you. Quite, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
well, shall we move on then? Yeah. Um, yes, whilst we recover, yeah. uh, Andy and his, his Dalek and his mic and all the rest of it. Well, that brings us to the end of the uh, commercial news segment for today. Uh, fascinating uh, insight, I think you'll agree there, into various things. <laughs> so, let's talk about this. It's the uh, Nat Boys uh, book. We were going to play the third segment of the interview on last week's show, but due to some technical challenges we weren't able to do that however we are back this week and it's the third and final part of nick's interview with rick peacock edwards uh, where he talks about his life as a military pilot at the end of this we'll be asking a quiz question because we have a signed copy here of the book from rick uh, so if you'd like to run the vt uh, matt then we'll uh, we'll play part three of this episode now, I was completely enthralled by Roy Gamblin's description of his engine failure in the night yeah. and his subsequent force landing through cloud on an unfamiliar airfield. And I kind of rode every minute of that with him, mulling over the difficult decisions he had to make. For me, the book was worth reading just for that chapter. Now, you've had a long career, Rick. Anything similar in your history that comes to mind? No, I've never... I, I mean, well... You read the book. There are plenty of stories of forced landings in there. Whether it was um, my very good friend Bobby Eccles, who was instructed to Valley, went to the Red Arrows, or Roy Somerville had two forced landings from uh, while he was a Red Arrow, uh, and then there's Roy Gamlet. And as you say, it's a fascinating story uh, with Mike Hullier in the back. Um, I never had. I mean, we used to we used to train, as you will remember. We trained for force landings, visual force landings, and um, radar force landings as well. But at Lambetta, and we did used to used to do radar force landings at Lambetta. But I think on this occasion, the, it was after hours basically. The airfield wasn't open. They did a fantastic job getting it on the ground. Absolutely yes, fantastic. Absolutely. Um, Roy, in fact, he to this day he lives not far from Lambetta. Oh wow! He's in sight of Lambetta. Looks looks out and remembers it well all the time. <laughs> Fantastic, brilliant. Now, many of the anecdotes in your book seem to deal with the numerous infractions and bent rules perpetrated by ex-fighter pilots at places like Little Rissington and Campbell. Surely there were a few responsible QFIs on the net. Yes, I was one. Of course you were. So. There was, well, I, you know, I used to like to think that we were, we were professional and, and, and responsible, and I think we were in general, but we were fighter pilots. Um, and that was, in many ways, you know, we, we, we would, the first time these young students coming off the Jet Provost, and they used to love being at Valley, love being sort of um, with, with chaps like myself and yourself later on, who'd come back from the front line, uh, who were fighter pilots themselves by then, in my day, whether it was mainly hunters and lightnings, in your day it was harriers and phantoms and things like that. Um, so there was always spirit there, and you can read it right from the start. I mean, at one stage, for example, um, they were concerned about the Nats' ability to fly, fly in formation. And you, yes, you, it was bad, you read, wasn't it? You, yes. you read in the book there a well-known uh, aviator called Al Pollock. Yes. Of of uh, flying through sort of Tower Bridge for yes, fame, exactly. Who who was an instructor at Valley, and uh, it was he and a few others who did some illegal formation, which actually 
led to the formation of the Yellow Jacks, the forerunners of the Red Arrows, but also sort of um, led to sort of getting the aircraft properly cleared for formation because it was a beautiful aircraft to fly in formation, absolutely lovely. Mm. Mm. It was, uh, and uh, despite the sensitivity of the controls, once you got the hang of it, it was it was really not a hard airplane. Nope. The engine response was very precise, yep. as I recall. Brilliant. It, you could, it, it sat there beautifully. No, used to love the formation there. Mm. So how would you compare it with, say, flying in formation in the Phantom? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the Phantom, apart from being a war machine, uh, is an interesting aircraft in its own right with, with all the... Uh, the Different, different. The engines operate rather differently, and you're in an aircraft that's got sort of um, puff and blow sort of things all over the place. I mean, the Phantom. Don't get me wrong. The, the Phantom is is very nice in formation, very stable, and nice if you've got yourself settled. But it's 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 a big aircraft, twenty tons, versus the Nat, which is less than I don't know, less than one ton, I think. It, it, they're different, I think. Like any aircraft I've flown, I've, flown I've, I've enjoyed flying formation in all the aircraft I've flown. I have found them different, and, uh, and it's very often dependent on the size of the aircraft. Um, and I mean, you know, for example, in the NAT, those having the rate of roll being as it was. So you, 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 the one thing about the NAT, you could you could over control in pitch and, and roll. That's when you go into formation initially. That was probably a little bit of a problem, which quickly, set, like, like everything else, it just settles down and then you're rock steady. And the same with the Phantom, you get used to that puff and blow and what have you, but it gets rock steady eventually. Yeah, you really had to fly the nap with your fingertips. Yeah. Yeah, and the Phantom had that appalling engine lag that used to catch us all out every now and again. <laughs> Now, the meat of your book is formed from personal recollections from those who flew it or were associated with it. Um, how did you manage to bring them all together? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I published my first book um, two years ago, which is my autobiography called Rate of Climb, uh, which has sold very well. And I was having lunch with my um, publisher from Grub Street, and, and he said to me, he said, Rick, I want you to write another book. So at lunch, we got talking about what the book should be about. And that's how we came to, I said, a, really, a book that hasn't been properly sort of uh, um, covered um, is the Nat. Because I knew that people loved flying the Nat. I knew there were lots of stories associated with the Nat. And so that's how it happened. But we signed a contract in October 2021. Um, and... Um, I had to deliver a manuscript in March, middle of March, 2022. So it was a very short order. And I thought, at that stage, I thought, I think I'll get my mate, Tom Hills, to come and join me. So he, he came and we did it together. And it was the best thing that I could have done because we really worked exceedingly well together. We then worked out, the first thing we had to do was go out, we had our own stories, obviously, uh, to go out and, and let people know we were writing a book and get information back. Well, I'm not joking. We were absolutely amazed. Um, wow. We went out. We've got a lot of contacts ourselves. But, for example, I mean, the Red Arrows sent it round to the world to get it out to their people. We got in touch with India. And once we got in touch with India and Finland, then the word 
went around there um, quickly. And we were absolutely inundated with um, people sort of contributing. In fact, I don't mind uh, saying that um, we've got so much material that um, we've got enough material right now to write a Nat Boys 2. Oh, wow. Excellent. Um, we, for, you'll find in the book, there's, um, I think there's six stories from India. We've got at least another six or seven stories waiting for Nat Boys 2, which all depends on sort of um, how the sales go. So I really want the sales to go well so that my um, publisher will get us to write the next one. Oh, yeah, I think we'd, we'd, I'd love to read it. So, as well. but, but, so we were amazed at contributions. And, and they all came in very quickly. And we did most of the work from January, February in, into beginning of March. And we submitted the draft on time. And it was um, published on time in July this year. Um, so we were well pleased with that. And, and um, we, the other thing that we introduced, which is in the book, is we, we, there were so many people who loved flying the aircraft. So many people contributed stories that we decided, well, you, you know, got people who contributed only a couple of lines mm. to a couple of paragraphs to a couple of pages. And then we've got others who contributed enough for chapters, as you've seen. So we thought, well, that's why we've got a section in there for what we call snippets and short stories. And, and that, I think, personally, I, I like because that gives um, visibility to many more of those who flew the Nat and just their little sort of uh, cameos that they've contributed. Absolutely. Now, many of those stories told to us by the Nat Boys um, mentioned being worryingly short of fuel. I know we've kind of mentioned it, but particularly after diversions and the like. Um, but that doesn't seem to have been your experience. Well, we were short of fuel, but I suppose, I suppose you know, having flown the Lightning, you, you just become, fuel becomes such, such an important part of, uh, of flying the aircraft. And it was in the Nat, too. Don't get me wrong. It was. And... I mean, at, at Valley, we did have, uh, where we instructed on the aircraft, we were very fortunate to have um, Mona only just down, down the way. So if we had a problem at Valley, for example, where we had three runways anyway, all right, some of them, the wind was always blowing at Valley, so prob probability is you've only had one that you could actually use. But normally we could always pop down to Mona. So if you, and we did have people with shorter fuel who had to go into Mona uh, instead. So yes, no, I'm, I'm not uh, not being. Uh, uh, fuel did require management in the net. You had to knew, to, you had to know sort of how how much fuel you needed to recover down the the dive arc, as we called it. How much fuel you needed for the uh, the whether it was running brake or um, feed into a GCA ground controlled approach, or whatever. So there was plenty of planning to do, and you had to know how much fuel you're using for an individual circuit. So yep, but. I don't think we had too many people who were sort of um, getting ultra short of fuel. Now, you had to be quite grown up about it. It was one aspect of the NAT that kept you very disciplined, wasn't it? Yes. Whereas but, in the Hawk, I recall, you know, it was, you were never really worried about it. No. I mean, the Hawk's different. I mean, the Hawk is, compared with the NAT, the Hawk is viceless. Absolutely, yes. Um, yes. Good job the frontline aeroplane Airplanes are pretty viceless nowadays. <laughs> so more on that subject, uh, I was interested to read um, the f one of the Finnish Air Force pilots' comments uh, on the Nat F-1 when he was describing flying dissimilar air combat against the Draken. 
the Draken, you seem to use its fuel so fast that yep. the Nat would stay airborne. It would have one fight with the Draken, and then they would go away, and another formation would come up, and then stay airborne for another fight. So perhaps the F1 had a bit more fuel, or just perhaps the Draken was very thirsty? I think the Draken was very thirsty. Okay. <laughs> rather, rather like the lightning, quite frankly. I mean, you know. Yeah. And, and I did do some, interesting enough, and, and it's in the book, um, I led a detachment to RAF Coningsby, in fact, of Nats, to do dissimilar air combat with the Phantoms there. Ah. Um, which was, I mean, the Phantom had plenty of fuel in it anyway. But it was, it was, it, it, that was an interesting experience. Mm. Mm. I know. Uh, being able to fight an aircraft that could almost disappear if you pointed at someone yeah. must have been wonderful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brilliant. So, um, in your book, it contains some great stories, like the Indian uh, squadron commander who told his pilots to check their guns after takeoff by firing a few Aden cannon shells into a nearby river without realising it was used by hundreds of local people <laughs> for their daily ablutions. Uh, do you have a particular favourite story in the book? Uh, no, I don't think I do. I just, I, I just have... Um, it's rather like I, 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 I just like everything that's in the book. Basically, don't, no, I don't think I do have a. I get asked this sort of question quite a lot. I get asked the question particularly about my myself, and which is my greatest memory. The trouble is, I've got so many memories. It's difficult. I find it difficult to have a favourite story. I do. Uh, excellent. So, the Nat Boys isn't the only amazing aviation book you've authored, because you've mentioned you've penned a biography called yeah. uh, The Rate of Climb. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that and what we would expect if we sat down and read it? Um, it's very different from Nat Boys, for a start. Nat, Nat, purely about the Nat. Whereas Rate of Climb is my autobiography. It covers my life. So, uh, and it's gone down very well. But, um, you know... It's not just an, a book about my flying career. It also covers my life growing up and, and in both South Africa and the UK and, and what I've done since I left the Air Force. So it's my whole, my whole life. So it's, it's very different. Um, I am intending my third book, which I'm thinking about now and, and beginning to research, is going to be, I think, I hope, um, about my father and I. And that will be a pure flying book sort of um, comparing, relating what he did in his days in World War II, flying the hurricane um, in all sorts of um, situations, with my days flying the lightning, phantom, gnat, um, tornado, etc. But um, I'm, I'm, that's in my mind at the moment. That's, that's, my task for, that's my task for the winter of 23-24. Um, Excellent, and I, I look forward to uh, what you produce. Now, is there anything else that you'd like us to talk about before uh, we wind this up, Frank? Um, I'm so pleased that Nat Boys has been published. I'm very pleased at some of the reviews, it's early days, some of the reviews we're receiving, um, and people are clearly enjoying the stories that are in the book. And Tom and I... We were very, very satisfied with what uh, what we produce and what's in the book, because it, there's something there for, for everyone, and it's a real, and and it was 
it's filled an, an, a niche in the market that was needed. Um, no, I, I just, you know, I, I set out in life. I didn't intend to write any books, quite frankly. And uh, it's, a, it's a, a big story behind my, writing my autobiography, my first book. But having done that, I learnt a lot. And um, that led on to the production of um, my second book, which, which is a bit different from... I mean, I didn't write this all myself. We we produced it, and uh, but uh, it was a very satisfying effort. Um, yeah, I've, 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 like everything in life, I've learnt, learnt a lot. And I think... Um, Writing books seems to be something I'm a growing interest in my life. Well, congratulations. Uh, I enjoyed it enormously. And thank you very much indeed for giving us your time. It's been a pleasure seeing you again. And good luck with the Nat Boys. And Nick, if I might say so, it's great to see you again. Sort of, uh, you bring back memories um, to me of um, days at Valley. And uh, you mentioned, um, you know, your, your navigation prowess at, at Valley. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things I was proud proud of at Paddy, if I can just say, was um, the fact that I was came off lightning, basically, and I was an air defence pilot, so I didn't do sort of that much sort of uh, low flying uh, then. But at Valley, we did a lot of low flying, and um, I used to love love it. And I did the pilot navigation instructor course, mainly reserved for those who come off the the low level mud moving world. Um, so I broke into their territory. And that was that was really one of the most satisfying things that I, I, I did there, and that's how we first came into contact. Yeah. Then, of course, at Lucas, different squadrons, mainly in the bar, I think it was there. Wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I'm very glad that you did that course, Rick, because without it, I think my flying career would have ground to a halt at Valley. But I really appreciate it, and thanks very much indeed for talking to us. Thank you, Nick. The Nat Boys isn't just a historic record of one of the many fast jet trainers used by the RAF because most of them have come and gone without leaving an indelible mark on the memories of those who flew it like the Nat did. It earned many nicknames like the Pocket Rocket, the Paraffin Dart and the Sabre Slayer to name just a few. Its sleek, needle-like appearance and remarkable manoeuvrability weren't the only things to imprint it on an entire generation of aviation lovers. It was the glorious sight of nine bright red gnats of the RAF's formation team flying twinkle rolls in close formation that ensured it became an enduring memory. This book encapsulates all of that, but then reveals the wonderful memories of many pilots who flew in it in particular, armed with only a pair of Aden cannons, taking the Nat into combat to bring down enemy aircraft. This book is more about just one tiny aircraft. It's about a shared love of flying that has touched pilots across the world. And I truly commend it to you. Well, how about that? Wasn't, wasn't that a great wonderful series third yeah. part of uh, uh, Rick Peacock Edwards uh, and his colleague Tom Eels uh, wrote the book called Nat Boys and we have a signed copy here from Rick himself which you very kindly signed on, on the day that we did that interview and we have a quiz question for mm -hmm. you which we are going to be running now and we'll give you the answer in next week's show um firstly send your answers to podcast at plaintalkinguk.com and we're going to draw out the winner 
on next week. Do not put your answer in the chat room, as it will not be counted. <laughs> and the editor's decision is final on that. Yes, okay? indeed. So, yeah. uh, the question is, during their military careers, Rick and Nick were based at two different RAF stations at the same time in the UK, which is where they originally met. What two RAF stations were they? I'll repeat the question. During their military careers, Rick and Nick were based at two different RAF stations at the same time in the UK, which is where they originally met. What two RAF stations were they? As I said, the answer will be on next week's show, and the winner will uh, receive a copy of Rick's book, personally signed by him, and I shall post that off to whoever the winner is, and we'll use uh, the Carlos hat, probably, to, to draw... <laughs> the winners out that's uh, a really hard, like i said that's a really hard question because i i genuinely have no idea well the the answer is in the yeah uh, yeah yeah it's in the episode somewhere so true yeah. true 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 uh but um anyway so that will be uh doing that next week and uh we're looking forward to uh to doing that so getting that on its great. way yeah absolutely yeah. great series it was thanks nev uh, I'm okay. sad it's over, really. We, we need to get something else in the can, don't we? Yes, we do. And we'll be mm. deciding on that in the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing uh, yeah. next year. Very exciting. Very uh, exciting. So what's next then, Matt? Do you think it's some uh, some military, maybe? Well, I think it's that grey thing, isn't it? Oh, it yeah. Is, well, before we move on to the military, you know, while the uh, interview was airing out, we were talking about some additional Christmas gifts. And <laughs> we would be we would be remiss if we didn't mention um, the... Uh, no, no, sorry. Not no. the dude right. <laughs> the... Uh, the Plain Talking UK, I only listen for the grey mugs, true, which should have true. been actually at the top of that Christmas list. Yep. Um, suitable for beverages as well as pens, uh, paper clips, and anything else that you want to put in there. But please grab yourself <laughs> one, two, three, or six for the whole family because yep. nobody enjoys the military as much as And I can st- I can still get them to you in time for Christmas as long as I receive your order by the end of um by the end of next week so make sure you get everything so the, the deadline is friday the 16th in order for me to try and get them uh to you as soon as i can so uh, make sure uh if you as i said i've got a couple of orders already that will be going out hopefully this week all being well um but yeah try and get them in before the end of next week if you want them in time for christmas all right i'm going to model it one more time and then i'm just going <laughs> to boop Matt Osprey right here on the nose. <laughs> Let's do some military. What's up, Buggies? 135, 50 Angel 16. 3 4 Sometimes I do wish you could hear what we talk about when we're not on air. It's always my pleasure to try to give you a heart attack coming out of the commercial breaks, Matt. You're always, the, always a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, from DefenseNews.com. Deterrence, the American way. If you haven't seen it yet, the new B-21 bomber just debuted this week. For the first time in almost a generation, the Air Force has revealed its new stealth bomber, a sleek, highly capable weapon that the service hopes will be so deadly that it would force leaders in China and Russia, you know, as examples, to rethink war for decades to come. The Air Force unveiled the Northrop Grumman-made B-21 Raider to the public last Friday in a ceremony at Air Force Plant 42 in Palmdale, California. That included top defense officials, Northrop Grumman Chief Executive Officer uh, Kathy Warden, and a tribute to the storied Doolittle Raiders for whom the bomber is made. 
Um, according to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, he said the audacity of the Doolittle Raiders has inspired generations of American aviators. It's fitting that the next chapter in American air power is named in their honor. Uh, the ceremony was actually attended by some of the families of the Doolittle Raiders and a crowd of Northrop Grumman employees, as well as it was broadcast over YouTube. As dusk fell, Northrop Grumman uh, employee sang the national anthem. A procession of three bombers streaked overhead, a B-52, a B-1, uh, and finally a B-2, which this aircraft looks a lot like. After the CEO of uh, Northrop's comments, in which she thanked the employees who designed and built the bomber, some dramatic music played, a pair of massive hangar doors slid wide open, and the B-21 sat there under a massive cover bathed in fog and blue light. The sheet dropped, <laughs> revealing the bomber, and it was towed towards the edge of the hangar as the crowd applauded. There was much rejoicing. Now, the long-awaited debut of the B-21 marks a milestone in reshaping the Air Force's increasingly creaky bomber fleet. Air Force leaders now envision that the B-21 is going to be the backbone of its future bomber force, which is a key ele element of the U.S. military arsenal, perhaps for the next half century or so. Now, when the highly classified secretive bomber actually starts arriving at Air Force bases, such as charming Ellsworth Air Force Base in, in South Dakota. Uh, later this decade, it will arrive with the capability to carry both nuclear and conventional weapons, including standoff and direct attack munitions. An estimated $203 billion price tag for the program. B-21 will be one of the top two biggest aircraft acquisitions programs in U.S. military history, rivaled only by our friend and... Uh, airplane that loves to go into the drink, the F-35. Um, the ceremony marked the first time that the Air Force has actually rolled out a new bomber in more than three decades since the B-2 Spirit's uh, debut at the exact same site on November 1988. Like its predecessor, the bat-shaped B-21 is a flying wing design with no tail, minimal fuselage, reduces drag, reduces enemy signature, or signature on enemy radars, um, the Air Force is thinking that the B-21, as it becomes more available, will eventually replace the B-1 and B-2s as the Air Force moves to a planned just two-bomber fleet. Um, so essentially, they're, they're thinking they're going to retire all the B-1s and B-2s by the early 2030s, leaving at least 100 B-21s and the B-52, which by that point will be almost 100 years in service with some revamped engines. So there you go. Not a lot came out of, of about this airplane until uh, it was revealed just uh, just this week. But now we know what it actually looks like. And even then, it was you know fog and some LED lights and all that stuff. So lots of details were not actually revealed. But it was a pretty cool ceremony. Uh, I think Jonathan Warner actually texted me about twenty minutes before the ceremony and and asked me, well, stated, commanded me to do nothing else but watch the ceremony. So I did indeed. <laughs> Anyway, pretty cool. Brilliant. Um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, uh, it was a <clears throat> fascinating uh, tale there, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, very interesting. Or lack thereof. <laughs> well, yes, quite. <laughs> <laughs> See what you did there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Nev, you've got the next one. This is an amazing story from the UK, isn't it? Yeah, very sad, actually. We heard this week, uh, it's on the BBC.com website, uh, tributes paid as last surviving dam buster. 
Johnny Johnson uh, dies. Uh, squadron leader uh, George Johnny Johnson was a bomb uh, aimer in the 617 Squadron, which destroyed key dams in Germany during the war. His family said he died peacefully in his sleep on Wednesday. In 2017, TV presenter Carol Vorderman led a campaign for Mr Johnson to receive a knighthood for his bravery uh, during the operation. He was born in Lincolnshire and lived in Bristol and was just 21 when he took part in the, in the 1943 operation, which involved experimental bouncing bombs that were targeted at dams in the Ruhr Valley, releasing huge quantities of water into areas used by Germany for war production. Mr Johnson was made an MBE in 2017 after a long-running campaign uh, supported by celebrities such as Miss Vorderman. She told BBC Radio Bristol that Mr Johnson was part of a generation that sacrificed everything but asked for nothing in return. Well over 50,000 died in combat uh, and their average age was uh, this similar to that of Johnny's at the time, Miss Vorderman said. They were young men, they were kids and Johnny was one of the finest. Posting to Facebook. His daughter Jenny Sexstone said that his family were beside their beloved Gramps at the time of his death. We would appreciate your respect for our privacy at this family time, she added. It was Mr Johnson's job to target the Sorper Dam as part of the attack, which was codenamed Operation Chastise and carried out by the RAF's 617 Squadron, based at RAF Scampton. It was one of the most dangerous air operations of the war, with 53 men killed and three captured. Painter Di Llewellyn Hall, who produced a portrait of Mr Johnson for his 100th birthday, described him as a man with a warming and inviting spirit. In the last few years of his life, Mr Johnson, who lived in Westbury-on-Trim in North Bristol, was involved in charity work and made many public appearances. In 2019, he had an intercity train named after him and was also given an honorary doctorate by the University of Lincoln in 2017. After 22 years of service in the Air Force, he worked as a teacher in Newark in Nottinghamshire. He and his wife Gwynne later moved to Devon, where he became a Conservative councillor. Author and war veteran and friend John Nichols said, I was looking through some pictures of all the times I'd met Johnny, and I think in every single one, he and I had got a glass of something in our hands, and we were raising a toast to something or someone. That's how I remember Johnny, a man who loved life, who served his nation and loved a glass of red wine. Lisa Harding, an aviation photographer and archivist for the Petwood Hotel in Lincolnshire, which was once home to the 617 Squadron, said she was heartbroken having met Mr Johnson on several occasions. He was truly a humble man who was always quick with his praise for everybody else with him in Bomber Command and who described himself as just doing his job and his relentless fight for Bomber Command veterans to get the medal that they deserved, she said. He was fighting for that pretty much up until his last breath well what a story absolutely incredible. what a wonderful story i mean i mean a good innings let's be honest uh an incredible innings but it is it is the end of a uh, it really is the end of an era isn't it uh yeah. so sad really but uh yeah i mean I, the good thing is, is you know I, I think uh you know his and many other stories have been well and truly documented so i hope people will continue to learn um, you know the story. Um, it's, and never uh, forget. Yeah, genuinely, never, never. That is forget. one thing that you guys do so well over there. I've always been <clears throat> envious of of how well you guys do, um, not just Remembrance Day, but remembering in general. Where, yeah. Um, and it sounds like Richard Adams in the chat room actually got a chance to um, meet Johnny <gasps> while wow. he was uh, getting a book signed. So, and uh, his uh, account 
con- concurs with that yeah. that he was a real gentleman. So. Wonderful, sad, but also um, you know, uh, uh, you know. Let's. I think we should celebrate. Really, um, you know, an, an amazing legacy um, that that he and his his brethren sort of have left behind. Really, for uh, people like us to be able to sort of really sort of get on with it i mean we you know we we don't we'll never know um what those guys went through um armando you probably got a better idea than most out of all of the people sat here at this this table but um yeah i i for one am very thankful for everything that he did yeah it's a good reminder in these times of how fragile peace is mm. and you've got to keep fighting for it agreed agreed couldn't agree more um, so we'll wrap up the military. We got one more story from airforcetimes.com. We actually talked about this uh, when it when it happened. Um, this was an F-16 that went down. It turned out that the Oklahoma Air, Air National Guard F-16 was, was actually destroyed when it was on a Homeland Security defense training mission that turned into a real-life attempt to intercept the civilian plane according to the Accident Investigation Board. The investigators actually blamed the pilot for the for the jet crash, saying that the airmen could have actually regained control over the F-16. The Air Force also ruled that the pilot and another instructor flying alongside of him violated multiple training rules when they chose to rendezvous and intercept with the incoming plane. The unnamed airman, which there's no reason to name them, the, uh, was an F-16 instructor pilot who worked at a Texas-based detachment of the 138th uh, Fighter Wing. They were flying over Louisiana when he successfully ejected, su- sustaining minor injuries, but the jet costs $27 million and it was totaled on impact. But March 23rd, the day uh, of the mishap, the airman headed out to practice a two-jet uh, homeland defense mission known that as a aerospace control alert or an intercept mission. Um, at first, the lead pilot pretended to be an unfamiliar aircraft so that the wingman, the airman who ultimately ejected, could pra- practice intercepting and escorting it. Um, their first run at doing this was uneventful, according to the report. But then things got a little bit real. The pilot discovered a general aviation aircraft flying at 1,700 feet in a holding pattern around Beauregard Regional Airport uh, in western Louisiana. So the lead pilot suggested that they intercept that aircraft. That would help the pair, ostensibly, practice visually identifying a low, slow-moving aircraft, according to the report. But the airmen didn't follow standard intercept procedures. They did not radio the civilian airplane or let air traffic control know about their attempted intercept. Uh, that's all according to the report. The lead pilot started to read the incoming plane's uh, tail number, but left to meet a tanker to go get gas. The other airman, however, dipped below the minimum required speed as he finished the intercept. Decelerating triggered a warning uh, that the jet could stall. Then, ultimately, the jet did stall. The F-16 was approximately 300 feet above the civilian aircraft, as opposed to the uh, published 1,000 feet required when executing an intercept from the side or the front. Um, they uh, apparently he hit some kind of wrong switch um, as he tried to climb. The aircraft shuddered as as a kind of a stall, um, but the pilot 
the shock factor wasn't expecting it. So they, you know, the air, the civilian aircraft was at 1700 feet. So really he's only about 2000 feet off the ground. The F-16 is a high, high, high performance jet with a high wing loading. Once it went into a stall, not a lot of time to recover at that point. He decided that the uh, the aircraft was unsafe and ejected. Uh, he landed in a tree and was rescued by a nearby army unit. But the investigation turned out that said uh, that ejecting was actually a mistake. Um, they went into the simulator. They conducted some flight simulated simulations and determined that even in a stall condition, the aircraft was still flyable. Um, at the point that the pilot decided to eject, um, there's a lot of power, as you know, in an F-16. And um, basically, they came to the conclusion that from that stall, the pilot could have applied full power and the correct stall recovery procedures. And at that altitude, at that airspeed, at that in those conditions replicated in the simulator, that the aircraft would have been uh, flyable. So... Not, not often that this happens that they just kind of hard blame a, a a pilot on this, but there's a lot of broken procedures on this. I couldn't imagine being on the civilian aircraft side of this and just being fly, flying along and having an unexpected, unannounced surprise intercept by a couple F-16s. I think that was a terrible decision uh, on the two pilots there to to effect this intercept of a civilian aircraft that wasn't part of the strip that the script that that could go wrong so many ways completely disagree with their um decision to to do that so either way at least uh nobody got hurt and he ejected and, and was fine and flying later so lessons learned i think uh, uh is probably the way to describe that won't do that again. No, quite. Yeah, he's lucky he got away with doing it the once. I think. <laughs> yeah. No, for real. Uh, I, that's, yeah. that's no joke. I don't know at what altitude he punched, but um, I don't know if he was already in that mind mindset mind state. Mm. Um, he may have gone in with the airplane. So glad he got out, but mm. it was flyable. Wow. Anyway, that wraps up our military. Incredible. What a story to end on as well. Blimey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Goodness. Well, that's almost uh, it for uh, today, isn't it? Mm. Um, so, Andy, what's uh, what's your plans for the next few days? Are you going to be in the sim the whole time, did you say? Or are you, uh... Uh, it's a couple of days of ground school and then a few days in the simulator as well, yeah. A busy, busy week. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, uh... But fun. It will be fun. Yeah, it's uh, is, is this is, is this? I know they all matter, but is this one that matters? I I, I get very confused. Like I, I suppose they wouldn't it's be not, putting you in the sim if it didn't matter. I suppose because they're not cheap, it, are they? It's not a license check or anything like that. But no. it's just, it's it's um just the course to start my qualification off. Ah, okay, cool. He, okay, he's being humble. So there's no higher rating <laughs> than than an airline transport an ATP certificate. So when the airline determines that you have the necessary qualifications and experience to be an instructor or check airman that's they're putting a lot of trust in you uh there andy so don't sell yourself short it's a great resume uh cv uh builder when you when you can demonstrate that you weren't just a a, a line flyer and you were a line check airman 
Um, I know it's big here in the U.S. and and uh, congratulations to you, sir, because that that is a lot of trust to be able to say yes, this individual is good to go to fly the line. Well, thank you. I'll get. I'll wait to get through the course first. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He'll be he'll be the first to celebrate. I'm sure once once you're out the other side of it. Well, good luck, Andy. I hope you have. Uh, hope it all goes well. I'm sure it will do. Uh, we all cheers. We, we all believe in you, dear boy. We all believe in you. <laughs> Thank you for having me on once again. It's been great fun. Always a pleasure. Yes, absolutely. A conversation that I will never get over, if I'm honest with you. Uh, but enough about what we were talking about. <laughs> yeah, quite, quite at the moment, wasn't it? Yes. It was. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I learned. Well, uh, I learned a lot. Yes. <laughs> I I didn't. No. Okay. Well, fair enough. <laughs> well, uh, so let's talk about how you can get in touch with us at the show here. Uh, social media links: uh, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just search those platforms for Plain Talking UK and you'll find us there. Our WhatsApp number is plus 44-757-224-9166. That's plus 44-757-224-9166. Email is podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. That's the email address you need to use if you'd like to enter the competition for this week. Give them a quick reminder of what the question is as well, I think. Uh, I should do that, shouldn't I, really? So I shall just do a bit of scrolling back in the old uh, uh, show notes and the question is uh, it's in order to win a copy of the Nat Boys book written by Rick Peacock Edwards and Tom Eels the question is during their military careers Rick and Nick who Nick was doing the interview were based at two different RAF stations at the same time in the UK which is where they originally met what two RAF stations were they and we've already got some uh, incoming answers we have indeed yeah and as well and so. you need to be quick on this one by the way as well you need to get your answers in before friday the 16th of december because we're going to do the draw at you know once once seven o'clock comes around on friday the 16th of december the you're out of luck basically because that's when they're going to do the draw so don't dilly dally get your answers in straight away if you want to win yourselves a copy of this signed incredible book yeah, absolutely. And don't forget, our website is all the W's, plaintalkinguk.com. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channels. You'll get notifications when we go live. And you can help shape the conversation of the show by joining us in the chat room, as so many people have done this evening. So thank you very much for doing that. And you can go to youtube.com and just search for Plain Talking UK there. Uh, also, as it's Christmas time, uh, we have an Amazon link on our website. Uh, we get paid a small referral fee if you do your Amazon shopping via our website. Uh, so just go to, to uh, our uh, plaintalkinguk.com website to get that. Uh, also, you can become a, a Patreon. Uh, you can help support the show financially. And that's also available as a click button on the website also. So I think that's probably about it tonight, Matt, isn't it? Yes, I think so. I think we've got everything covered there, yes. yes. <laughs> no, it's been a great evening uh, once again. Thanks to Armando. Great uh, military contribution as ever and uh, other contributions. Have you got anything nice planned next week? Uh, I'm actually doing the bulk of my flying for the year is, is over the next week. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'll, be, I'll be in the in the Hawker. I'll be in Alabama, Tulsa, Huntsville. Goodness me. I think Albuquerque, Las Vegas, uh, basically flying every single day over the next five days. Wow. Okay. Good luck. Good luck. Safe. Blue skies and all that. Blue skies and tailwinds, I think is what they say, isn't it? What's up? Indeed. Uh, What about you, uh, Nev? What are you up to? 
Um, what have we got? Oh, the company Christmas party Ooh. next week uh, in Brighton <laughs> on the south Ooh, coast. Nice location. Behave yourself. <laughs> that, that could be interesting, I and bet. it could be difficult the following day. I think quite but, yes. I think I think uh, I think a, a scheduled lay down will be required at some point the following day. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I should be travelling back on the Friday morning, so hopefully I will be on the show uh, in the evening on Friday. Okay. Good luck, everyone. Yes, indeed. I'm not here next week. I've got a week off. That's because uh, it's the company Christmas party. Um, And uh, frankly, I wasn't going to turn down the fact that I work for a wine company uh, and not go to their Christmas party, frankly. So uh, because the one thing you can be sure is the wine is free. So, uh, yeah, definitely going to be doing it. So I'm not here next week. Uh, uh, Carlos will be in the chair next week. uh, Could you give him a a technical driving (laughs) lesson before next week? I'll certainly try. I'll certainly try. I do keep trying trying <laughs> i do yeah. keep trying lovely everybody badger him and make sure that he uh, he comes for some training uh, but that's it nev let's say good night shall we yeah thanks very much to everyone for joining us tonight as always and to armando to andy and to matt that's all for now look forward to seeing you again same time next week bye for now mm-hmm.